Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Jeeves and the Tie That Binds by P.G. Woodhouse, Volume 7, Chapter 16. It was with heart definitely bowed down and the circles beneath my eyes darker than ever that I drove back the next day in what is known as the quiet evenfall. I remember Jeeves saying something to me once about the heavy and the weary weight of this unintelligible world. Not his own, I gathered, but from the works of somebody called Wordsworth, if I caught the name correctly. And it seemed to me rather a good way of describing the depressing feeling you get when the soup is about to close over you and no life belt in sight. I was conscious of this heavy and weary weight some years ago, that time when my cousins, Eustace and Claude, without notifying me, inserted 23 cats in my bedroom and I had it again in spades at the present juncture. Consider the facts. I got up to London to wrestle in solitude with the following problems. A. How am I going to get out of marrying Madeline Bassett? B. How am I going to restore the porringer to L.P. Runcal before the constabulary come piling on the back of my neck? C. How's the ancestor to extract the money from Runcal? D. How was Ginger to marry Magnolia Glendenin when betrothed to Florence? And I was returning with all four still in status quo. For a night and a day, I had been giving them the cream of the Worcester brain, and for all I had accomplished, I might have been the aged relative trying to solve the Observer Crosswood puzzle. Arriving at Jenny's end, I steered the car into the drive. About halfway along it, there was a tricky right-hand turn, and I had to slow down to negotiate this. When I did this, a dim figure appeared before me, and a voice said, Hoy! And I saw it was Ginger. He seemed annoyed at something. His hoy had a note of reproach in it, as far as it is possible to get a note of reproach into hoy. And as he drew near and shoved his torso through the window, I received a distinct impression he was displeased. His opening words confirmed this. Bertie, you abysmal louse! What's kept you all this time? When I lent you my car, I didn't expect you'd come back at two o'clock in the morning. It's only half past seven. He seemed amazed. Is that all? I thought it was later. Uh, so much has been happening. What's been happening? No time to tell you now. I'm in a hurry. It was at this point that I noticed something in his appearance which I had overlooked. A trifle, but I'm rather observant. You've got egg in your hair, I said. Of course I've got egg in my hair. He said, his manner betraying impatience. What did you expect me to have in my hair, Chanel number five? Did somebody throw an egg at you? Everyone threw eggs at everybody. Correction, some of them threw turnips and potatoes. You mean the meeting broke up in disorder, as the expression is? I don't suppose any meeting in the history of English politics has ever broken up in more disorder. Eggs flew hither and thither. The air was dark with vegetables of every description. Sidcup got a black eye. Somebody plugged him with a potato. I found myself of two minds. On the one hand, I felt a pang of regret for having missed what had all the earmarks of having been a political meeting of the most rewarding kind. On the other... It was like rare and refreshing fruit to hear that Spode had got hit in the eye with a potato. I was conscious of an odd respect for the marksman who had accomplished his feat. A potato, being so knobbly in shape, can be aimed accurately only by a master hand. 
Tell me more, I said, well pleased. Tell you more be blowed. I've got to get up to London. We want to be there bright and early tomorrow in order to inspect registrars and choose the best one. Well, that didn't sound like Florence, who, if she ever gets through an engagement without breaking it, is sure to insist on a wedding with bishops, bridesmaids, full choral effects, and a reception afterwards. A sudden thought struck me, and I think I may have gasped. Somebody made a noise like a dying soda water fountain, and it was presumably me. When you say we, do you mean you and M. Glendennon? Who else? How? Never mind how. But I do mind how. You were problem D on my list, and I want to know how you've been solved. I gather that Florence has remitted your sentence. She has, in words of unmistakable clarity. Get out of my car. But why? Because if you're not out in two seconds, I'm going to pull you out. I mean, why did she R your S? Ask Jeeves. He said, and attaching himself to the collar of my coat, he removed me from the automobile like a stevedore, hoisting a sack of grain. He took my place at the wheel and disappeared down the drive to keep his tryst with the little woman, who presumably awaited him in some prearranged spot with bags and baggage. He left me in a condition which can be best described as befogged, bewildered, mystified, confused, and perplexed. All I had got out of him was that, A, the debate had not been conducted in an atmosphere of utmost cordiality, B, at its conclusion, Florence had forbidden the bans, and C, that if I wanted further information, Jeeves would supply it. A little more than the charmers got out of the deaf adder, but not by much. I felt like a barrister, as it might be Mama Corkendale, who has been baffled by an unsatisfactory witness. However, he had spoken of Jeeves as a font of information, so my first move on reaching the drawing room and finding nobody there was to put forefinger to bell button and push. Seppings answered the summons. He and I have been buddies from boyhood. Mine, of course, not his. And as a rule, when we meet, conversation flows like water, mainly on the subject of the weather and the state of his lumbago. But this was no time for idle chatter. Seppings, I said. I want cheese. Where is he? In the servants' hall, sir, comforting the parlour maid. I took him to allude to the employee whose gong work I had admired on my first evening. And pressing, though my business was, it seemed only humane to offer a word of sympathy for whatever her misfortunes might be. Bad news, has she? Oh, no, sir. She was struck by a turnip. Where? In the lower ribs, sir. I mean, where did this happen? At the town hall, sir, in the later stages of the debate. I drew in my breath sharply. More and more I was beginning to realise that the meeting I had missed had been marked by passions that recall the worst excesses of the French Revolution. I myself, sir, narrowly escaped being hit by a tomato. It whizzed past my ear. You shocked me profoundly, Seppings. I don't wonder you're pale and trembling. And indeed he was, like a badly set blancmange. What's caused all this turmoil? Mr Winship's speech, sir. That surprised me. I could readily believe that any speech of Ginger's would be well below the mark set by Demosthenes, if that was really the fellow's name. But surely not so supremely lousy as to start his audience throwing eggs and vegetables. And I was about to institute further inquiries when Sepping sidled to the door saying he would inform Mr. Jeeves of my desire to confer with him.
and in due season the hour produced the man, as the expression is. You wish to see me, sir? He said. You could put it even stronger, Jeeves. I yearn to see you. Indeed, sir. Just now I met Ginger in the drive. Yes, sir. He informed me that he was going there to await your return. He tells me he's no longer betrothed to Miss Cray, being now affianced to Miss Glendennan. And when I asked him how this switch had come about, he said you would explain. I shall be glad to do so, sir. You wish a complete report. That's right. Admit no detail, however slight. He was silent for a space, marshalling his thoughts, no doubt. Then he got down to it. The importance attached by the electorate to the debate was quite evident, sir. An audience of considerable size had assembled in the town hall. The mayor and corporation were there, together with the flower of Market Snodsbury aristocracy and a rougher element in cloth caps and turtleneck sweaters who should never have been admitted. I had to rebuke him at this point. That's a bit snobbish, Jeeves, isn't it? You are a little too inclined to judge people by their clothes. Turtleneck sweaters are royal raiment, when they're worn for virtue's sake, and a cloth cap may hide an honest heart. Probably frightfully good chaps, if one got to know them. I would prefer not to know them, sir. It was they who subsequently threw eggs, potatoes, tomatoes, and turnips. I had to concede that he had a point there. True, I said, I was forgetting that. All right, Jeeves, carry on. The proceedings opened with a rendering of the national anthem by the boys and girls of Market Snodsbury Elementary School. Pretty ghastly, I imagine. Somewhat revolting, sir, yes. And then? The mayor made a short address introducing the contestants, and Mrs. McCorkendale rose to speak. She was wearing a smart coat in fine-quality rep over a long-sleeved frock of figured maroquine pleated at the sides and finished at the neck with, Skip all that, Jeeves! I am sorry, sir. I thought you wished every detail, however slight. Only when they're... Oh, what's the word? Pertinent, sir. That's right. Take the McCorkendale's outer crust as red. How was the speech? Extremely telling, sir, in spite of a good deal of heckling. Well, that wouldn't put her off a stroke. No, sir. She impressed me as being of a singularly forceful character. Yes, me too. You have met the lady, sir. For a few minutes, which, however, were plenty. She spoke at some length? Yes, sir. If you would care to read her remarks, I took down both speeches in shorthand. Later, perhaps. At any time that suits you, sir. And how was the applause? Hearty? Sporadic? On one side of the hall, extremely hearty. The rougher element appeared to be composed in almost equal parts of her supporters and those of Mr. Winship. They had been seated at opposite sides of the auditorium, no doubt by design. Her supporters cheered, and Mr. Winship's booed. And when Ginger got up, I suppose her lot booed him. No doubt they would have done so, sir, had it not been for the tone of his address. His appearance was greeted with a certain modicum of hostility, but he had scarcely begun to speak when he was rapturously received. By the opposition? Yes, sir. Strange. Yes, sir. Can you elucidate? Yes, sir, if I might consult my notes for a moment. Ah, yes, Mr. Winship's opening words were, Ladies and gentlemen, I come before you a changed man. 
And a voice said, that is good news. And a second voice said, shut up, you bleeder. And a third voice said, I think we might pass lightly over the voices, Jeeves. Very good, sir. Mr. Winship then said, I should like to begin with a word to the gentleman in the turtleneck sweater in that seat over there who kept calling my opponent a silly old geezer. If he will kindly step onto this platform, I shall be happy to knock his ugly block off. Mrs. McCorkendale is not a silly old geezer. A voice then said, Oh, excuse me, sir, I was forgetting. Mrs. McCorkendale is not a silly old geezer, Mr. Winship said, but a lady of the greatest intelligence and grasp of affairs. I admire her intensely. Listening to her this evening has changed my political views completely. She has converted me to hers, and I propose, when the polls are closed, to cast my vote for her. I advise all of you to do the same. Thank you. He then resumed his seat. Good Lord, Jeeves! Yes, sir. He really said that? Yes, sir. No wonder the engagement's off. I must confess it occasioned me no surprise, sir. I continued amazed. It seemed incredible that Ginger, whose long suit was muscle rather than brain, should have had the ingenuity and know-how to think up such a scheme for freeing himself from Florence's clutches without forfeiting his standing as a chevalier. It seemed to reveal him as possessed of snakiness of a high order, and I was just thinking you could never tell about a fellow's hidden depths when one of those sudden thoughts of mine came popping to the surface. Was this you, Jeeves? Sir, did you put Ginger up to doing that? It is conceivable that Mr. Winship may have been influenced by something I said, sir. He was very much exercised with regard to his matrimonial entanglements, and he did me the honour of consulting me. It is quite possible I may have let fall some careless remark that turned his thoughts in the direction they took. In other words, you told him to go to it? Yes, sir. I was silent for a space. I was thinking how jolly it would be if he could dish up something equally effective with regard to me and M. Bassett. The thought also occurred to me that what had happened, while excellent for Ginger, wasn't so good for his backers and supporters, and the conservative cause in general, and I mentioned this. It must be tough on the fellows who betted on him. Into each life some rain must fall, sir. Though possibly a good thing. A warning to them in the future to keep their money in the old oak chest and not risk it on wages. May prove a turning point in their lives. What really saddens me is the thought that Bingley will now clean up. He'll make a packet. He told me this afternoon that he was expecting to do so, sir. You mean you've seen him? He came here at about five o'clock, sir. Stockish, hard and full of rage, I suppose? On the contrary, sir, extremely friendly. He made no allusion to the past. I gave him a cup of tea, and we chatted for perhaps half an hour. Strange! Yes, sir. I wondered if he might not have an ulterior motive in approaching me. Such as? I must confess I cannot think of one, sir, unless he entertained some hope of inducing me to part with the club book. But that is hardly likely. Would there be anything further, sir? You want to get back to the stricken parlour-maid? Yes, sir. When you rang, I was about to see what a little weak brandy and water would do for her. I sped him on his errand of mercy and sat down to brood. You might have supposed that the singular behaviour of Bingley would have occupied my thoughts. I mean, when you hear that a chap of his well-established crookedness has been acting oddly, 
your natural impulse is to say aha and wonder what his game is. And perhaps for a minute or two I did ponder on this, but I had so many other things to ponder on that Bingley soon got shoved into the discard. If I remember rightly, it was as I mused on problem B, the one about restoring the porringer to L.P. Runcall and again drew a blank, that my reverie was interrupted by the entrance of the old ancestor. She was wearing the unmistakable look of an aunt who has just been having the time of her life, and this did not surprise me. A really sensational event, such as the egg and vegetable throwing get-together she had just been present at, must have bucked her up like a week at the seaside. Her greeting could not have been more cordial, and aunt's love oozed out from every syllable. Hello, you revolting object, she said. So you're back. I just arrived. Too bad you had that jury job. You missed a gripping experience. So Jeeves was telling me. Ginger finally went off his rocker. With the inside information which had been placed at my disposal, I was able to correct this view. There was no rocker that he went off of, aged relative. His actions were motivated by the soundest good sense. He wanted to get Florence out of his hair without actually telling her to look elsewhere for a mate. Don't be an ass. He loves her. No longer. He switched to Magnolia Glendennan. You mean that secretary of his? The identical secretary. How do you know that? He told me himself. Well, I'll be blowed. He finally got fed up with Florence's bossiness, did he? Yes, I think it must have been coming on for some time without him knowing it. Subconsciously, as Jeeves would say. Meeting Magnolia brought it to the surface. She seems like a nice girl. Very nice, according to Ginger. I'll have to congratulate him. He'll have to wait a bit. They've gone up to London. So have Spode and Madeline, and Roncal ought to be leaving soon. It's like one of those great race movements of the Middle Ages I used to read about in school. Well, this is wonderful. Pretty soon it'll be safe for Tom to return to the nest. There's still Florence, of course, but I doubt if she'll be staying on. My cup runneth over, young Bertie. I've missed Tom sorely. Home's not home without him messing about the place. Why are you staring at me like a halibut on a fishmonger's slab? I'd not been aware that I was conveying this resemblance to the fish she mentioned, but my gaze must have certainly been on the intense side, for her opening words had stirred me to my depths. Did you say... I suppose was separated would be the best word. That Spode and Madeline Bassett had gone to London? Left half an hour ago. Together? Yes, in his car. But Spode told me she was giving him the push. She did, but everything's all right again. He's not going to give up his title and stand for Parliament. Getting hit in the eye with that potato changed his plans completely. It made him feel that if that was the sort of thing you have to go through to get elected to the House of Commons, he preferred to play it safe and stick to the House of Lords. And she, of course, assured that there was going to be no funny business and that she would become Countess of Sidcup all right, withdrew her objections to marrying him. Now you're puffing like Tom when he goes upstairs too fast. Why is that? Actually, I breathed deeply, not puffed and certainly not like Uncle Tom when he goes upstairs too fast. But I suppose, to an aunt, there isn't much difference between a deep-breathing nephew and a puffing nephew. Anyway, I was in no mood to discuss the point. You don't know who it was who threw the potato, do you? I asked. 
The one that hit Spode? No. It sort of came out of the void. Why? Because if I knew it was, I would send camels bearing apes, ivory and peacocks to his address. He saved me from a fate worse than death. I allude to marriage with the Bassett disaster. Was she going to marry you? According to Spode? A look of awe almost came into my ancestor's face. How right you were, she said, when you told me once you had faith in your star. I have lost count of the number of times you've been definitely headed for the altar, with apparently no hope of evading the firing squad, and every time something has happened that enabled you to wriggle out of it, it's uncanny. She would, I think, have gone deeper into the matter, for already she had begun to pay a marked tribute to my guardian angel, who she said plainly knew his job from soup to nuts. But at this moment, Seppings appeared and asked her if she would have a word with Jeeves, and she went out to have it. And I had just put my feet up on the chaise lounge, and was starting to muse ecstatically on the astounding bit of luck which had removed the basset menace from my life, when my mood of what the French call bien-être was given the sleeve across the windpipe by the entrance of L.P. Rencal, the mere sight of whom, Sirks being what they were, was enough to freeze the blood and make each particular hair stand on end like quills upon the fretful porpentine, as I have heard Jeeves put it. I was not glad to see him, but he seemed glad to see me. Ah, there you are. They told me you had skipped. Very sensible of you to come back. It's never any good to go on the run, because the gendarmes are sure to get you sooner or later, and it makes it all the worse for you if you've done a bolt. With cold dignity, I said I'd had to go up to London on business. He paid no attention to this. He was scrutinizing me rather in the manner of the halibut on the fishmonger's slab to which the ancestor had referred in our recent conversation. The odd thing is, you have not a criminal face. He said, continuing to scan me closely. It is a silly, fatuous face, but not criminal. It remind me of one of those fellows who dances with the soubrette in the musical comedy. Come, come, I said to myself. This is better. Spoda compared me to a member of the ensemble. In the view of L.P. Roncal, I was at any rate one of the principals. Moving up in the world, I guessed. Must be of great help to you in your business. Lulls people into a false security. They think they cannot be in any danger from someone who looks like you. They're off their guard and wham, you got away with their umbrella and cameras. And no doubt you owe all your successes to this. But you know the old saying about the pitcher going too often to the well. This time you're in for it. This time. He broke off. Not because he had come to the end of his very offensive remarks, but because Florence had joined us. And her appearance immediately claimed his attention. She was far from being dapper. It was plain she had been in the forefront of the late battle. For whereas Ginger had merely had egg in his hair... She was, as it were, festooned in egg. She had evidently been right in the centre of the barrage. In all political meetings of the stormier kind, these things are largely a matter of luck. A escapes unscathed, and B becomes a human omelette. A more tactful man than L.P. Runcall would have affected not to notice this, but I didn't suppose it ever occurred to him to affect not to notice things. Hello. You've got egg all over you. He said... Florence replied rather acidly she was aware of this. I think you had better change your dress. I intend to. 
Would you mind, Mr. Runcal, if I had a word with Mr. Worcester alone? I think Runcal was on the point of saying, What about? But on catching her eye, he had a prudent second thought, and he lumbered off, and she proceeded to have the word she had mentioned. She kept it crisp, none of the er-er-um stuff, which was such a feature in Ginger's oratory. Even Demosthenes would have been slower in coming to the nub, though he, of course, would have been handicapped by having to speak in Greek. I'm glad I found you, Bertie. A civil O.R. was all the reply I could think of. I have been thinking things over, and I have made up my mind. Harold Winship is a mere lout, and I am having nothing more to do with him. I see now I made a great mistake when I broke off my engagement with you. You have your faults, but they are easily corrected. I have decided to marry you, and I think we shall be very happy. But not immediately, said Ed Piran Carl, rejoining us. I described him a moment ago as lumbering off, but a man like that never lumbers far if there's a chance of hearing what someone has to say to someone else in private. First, he'll have a longish stretch in prison. His reappearance had caused Florence to stiffen. She now stiffened further, her aspect similar to that of the old ancestor when about to go into the Grand Dame Act. Mr. Roncal. I am here. I thought you had gone. I had not. How dare you listen to a private conversation? They are the only things worth listening to. I owe much of my large fortune to listening to private conversations. What is this nonsense about prison? Worcester won't find it nonsense. He has sneaked a valuable silver porringer of mine, a thing I paid £9,000 for, and I am expecting a man any minute now who will produce the evidence necessary to convict. It's an open and shut case. Is this true, Bertie? said Florence, with that touch of the prosecuting district attorney I remembered so vividly, and all I could say was, Well, I, uh, well, um, uh, ah. Uh. With a guardian angel like mine working overtime, it was enough. She delivered judgment instantaneously. I shall not marry you, she said, and went off haughtily to de-egg herself. Very sensible of her said L.P. Runcall. The right course to take. A man like you, bound to be always in another prison. You could not possibly be a good husband. How is a wife to make her plans, dinner parties, holidays, Christmas treats with the children? The hundred and one things a woman has to think of when she does not know from one day to another whether the head of the house won't be telephoning to say he'd be arrested again and no bail allowed. Yes, said Runcal, and I saw that Seppings had appeared in the offing. I, Mr. Bingley, has called to see you, sir. Ah, yes, I was expecting him. He popped off, and scarcely had he ceased to pollute the atmosphere when the old ancestor blew in. She was plainly agitated, the resemblance to a cat on hot pricks being very marked. She panted a good deal, and her face had taken on the rather pretty mauve colour it always does when her soul is not at rest. Bertie! She boomed. When you went away yesterday, did you leave the door to your bedroom unlocked? Course I didn't. Well, Jeeves says it's open now. It can't be. It is. He thinks Runcal or some minion of his has a skeleton key. Don't yell like that, curse you. I might have retorted by asking her what she expected me to do when I suddenly saw all but I was too busy seeing all to be diverted into arguments 
about my voice production. The awful truth had hit me squarely between the eyes, as if it had been an egg or a turnip hurled by one of the market Snodsbury electorate. Bingley, I ejaculated. And don't sing. I was not singing, I was ejaculating Bingley. Oh, vociferously saying Bingley, if you prefer it. You remember Bingley, the fellow who stole the club book, the chap you were going to take by the throat and shake like a rat? Aged relative, we are up against it in no uncertain manner. Bingley is the wrong call Mingin you alluded to. Jeeves says he dropped in to tea this afternoon. What's simpler for him after having his cuppa than to nip upstairs and search my room? He used to be Runcall's personal attendant, so Runcall would naturally turn to him when he needed an accomplice. Yes, I don't wonder you're perturbed, I added, for she had set the welkin ringing with one of those pungent monosyllables so often on her lips in the old corn and pitchley days. And I'll tell you something else which will remove your last doubts, if you had any. He's just turned up again, and Runcall has gone out to confer with him. What do you suppose they're conferring about? I'll give you three guesses. The corn trains its daughters well. So does the Pitchley. She did not swoon as many an aunt would have done in her place, merely repeated the monosyllable in a slightly lower tone, meditatively as it were, like some aristocrat of the French Revolution on being informed that the tumbrel waited. That tears it! She said the very word such an aristocrat would have used, though speaking of course in French. I'll have to confess that I took his foul porringer. No, no, you must do that. What else is there for me to do? I can't let you go to the chokey. I don't mind. I do. I may have my faults, but no, no. Yes, yes, I am quite aware that there are blemishes in my spiritual makeup that ought to have been corrected at my finishing school, but I draw the line at letting my nephew do a stretch for pinching porringers which I pinch myself, and that is final. I saw that she meant it, of course. Noblesse oblige and all that, and very creditable, too. But I had a powerful argument to put forward, and I lost no time in putting it. But wait, old ancestor, there's another aspect of the matter. If it's, what's the expression? If it's bruited abroad, then I'm merely an as pure as the driven snow innocent bystander. My engagement to Florence will be on again. Your what to who? It should have been whom, but I let it go. Are you telling me that you and Florence? She proposed to me ten minutes ago, and I had to accept her, because one is either a chevalier or one is not. And then Runcall butted in and pointed out to her the disadvantages of marrying someone who would shortly be sewing mailbags and wormwood scrubs, and she broke it off. The relatives seemed stunned, as if she'd come on something abstruse in the Observer Crossword puzzle. What is it about you that fascinates the girls? First Madeline Bassett and now Florence and dozens of others in the past. You must have a magnetic personality. That would seem to be one explanation, I agreed. But there it is. One whisper that there isn't a stain on my character and I haven't a hope. The bishop will be notified, the assistant clergy and bridesmaids rounded up, the organist will start practicing the voice that breathed over Eden, and the limp figure you see drooping at the altar rails will be Bertram Wilberforce Worcester. I implore you, old blood relation, be silent and let the law take its course, if it's a choice between serving a life sentence under Florence and sewing a mailbag or two 
Give me the bail bags every time. She nodded understandingly and said she saw what I meant. I thought you would. There's much in what you say. She mused a while. As a matter of fact, though, I doubt if it will get as far as mailbags. I'm pretty sure what's going to happen. Runkal will offer to drop the whole thing if I let him have Anatole. Good God! You may well say good God. You know what Anatole means to Tom. She did not need to labor the point. Uncle Tom combines a passionate love of food with a singular difficulty in digesting it. And Anatole is the only chef yet discovered who can fill him up to the plimsoll mark without causing the worst sort of upheaval in his gastric juices. But would Anatole go to Runcal? He'd go to any one if the price was right. None of that faithful old retainer stuff? None. His outlook is entirely practical. That's the French in him. I wonder that you've been able to keep him for so long. He must have had other offers. I've always topped them. If it was simply another case about bidding the opposition, I wouldn't be worrying. But when Uncle Tom comes back and finds Anatole conspicuous by his absence, won't the home be a bit in the melting pot? I don't like to think of it. But she did think of it, and so did I. And we were both thinking of it when our musings were interrupted by the return of L.P. Runcall, who waddled in and fixed us with a bulging eye. I suppose if he had been slenderer, one might have described him as a figure of doom. But even though so badly in need of a reducing diet, he was near enough to being one to make my interior organs do a quick shuffle off to buffalo, as if some muscular hand had stirred them up with an egg whisk. And when he began to speak, he was certainly impressive. These fellows who have built up large commercial empires are always what I have heard Jeeves call oratund. They get that way from dominating meetings of shareholders. Having started off with, Oh, there you are, Madame Travers. He went into his speech, and it was almost as oratund as anything that has ever come my way. It ran as nearly as I can remember as follows. I was hoping to see you, Madame Travers. In a previous conversation, you will recall, I stated uncompromisingly that your nephew, Monsieur Wooster, had purloined the silver porringer that I brought here to sell to your husband, whose absence I greatly deplore. That this was no mere suspicion has now been fully substantiated. I have a witness who is prepared to testify on oath in court that he found it in the top drawer of the chest of drawers in Mr. Wooster's bedroom, unskillfully concealed behind socks and handkerchiefs. Here, if it had been a shareholders' meeting, he would probably have been reminded of an amusing story, which may be new to some of you present this afternoon, but I suppose in a private conversation he saw no need for it. He continued, still oratant. The moment I report this to the police, and acquaint them with the evidence at my disposal, Worcester's arrest will follow automatically, and a sharp sentence will be the inevitable result. It was an unpleasant way of putting it, but I was compelled to admit that it covered the facts like a bedspread. Dust off that cell, Wormwood Scrubs, I was saying to myself. I shall soon be with you. Such is the position. But I am not a vindictive man. I have no wish, if it can be avoided, to give pain to a hostess who has been to such trouble to make my visit enjoyable. He paused for a moment to lick his lips, 
I knew he was again tasting those master dishes of Anatole's, and it was on Anatole that he now touched. What's saying here is your guest. I have been greatly impressed by the skill and mastery of your chef. I will agree to not press charges against Monsieur Wooster, provided you consent to let this gifted man leave your employment and enter mine. A snort rang through the room. One of the ancestors' finest. You might have almost called it orotund. Followed by the word ha, she turned to me with a spacious wave of the hand. Didn't I tell you, Bertie? Wasn't I right? Didn't I say the child of unmarried parents would blackmail me? A fellow with the excess weight of L.P. Rincal finds it difficult to stiffen all over when offended, and he stiffened as far as he could. It was as if some shareholder at the meeting had said the wrong thing. Blackmail? That is what I said. It is not blackmail. It is nothing of the sort. He is quite right, madam. Said Jeeves, appearing from nowhere. I'll swear he hadn't been there a half-second before. Blackmail implies extortion of money, madam. Mr. Runcall is merely extorting a cook. Exactly. A purely business transaction. Said Runcall, obviously considering him a Daniel come to judgment. It would be very different, said Jeeves, were someone to try to obtain money from him by threatening to reveal that while in America he served a prison sentence for bribing a juror in a case in which he had been involved. A cry broke from L.P. Runcall's lips, somewhat similar to the one the cat Gus had uttered when the bag of cat food fell on him. He tottered, and his face would, I think, have turned ashy white if his blood pressure hadn't been the sort that makes it pretty tough going for a face to turn ashy white. The best it could manage was something Florence would have called sallow. The ancestor, on the other hand, had revived like a florette beneath the watering can. Not that she looks like a florette, but you know what I mean. What? She ejaculated. Yes, madam. The details are all in the club book. Bingley recorded them faithfully. His views were very far to the left at the time, and I think he derived considerable satisfaction from penning an expose of a gentleman of Mr. Runcall's wealth. It is also with manifest gusto that he relates how Mr. Runcall, in grave danger of a further prison sentence in connection with a real estate fraud, forfeited the money he had deposited as security for his appearance in court and disappeared. You mean he jumped bail? Precisely, madam. He escaped to Canada using a false beard. The ancestor drew a deep breath. Her eyes were glowing more like twin stars than anything. Had not her dancing days been long past, I think she might have gone into a brisk buck and wing. The lower limbs twitched just as if she were planning to. Well, a nice bit of news that'll be for the fellows who dole out knighthoods, eh, Runcall? They'll say, that old lag, if we made a man like that a knight, we'd never hear the last of it. The boys on the opposition benches would kid the pants off us. We were discussing yesterday, Runcall, that little matter of the money you ought to have given Tuppy Glossop years ago. If you will step up into my boudoir, we will continue that conversation. Chapter 17 The following day dawned bright and clear, at least I suppose it did, but I didn't awake at the time. 
When eventually I came to life, the sun was shining, all nature appeared to be smiling, and Jeeves was bringing in breakfast. Gus the cat, who had been getting his eight hours on an adjacent armchair, stirred, opened and eye, and did a sitting high jump onto the bed, eager not to miss anything that was going on. Good morning, Jeeves. Good morning, sir. Weather looks all right. Extremely element, sir. The snails on the wing and the larks on the thorn, or rather the other way around, as I've always heard you say. Are those kippers I smell? Yes, sir. Detach a portion for Gus, will you? He will probably like to take it from the soap dish, reserving the saucer for milk. Very good, sir. I sat up and eased the spine into the pillows. I was conscious of a profound peace. Jeeves, I am conscious of a profound peace. I wonder if you remember me telling you a few days ago that I was having a sharp attack of euphoria. Yes, sir, I recall your words clearly. You said you were sitting on top of the world with a rainbow round your shoulder. Similar conditions prevail this morning. I thought everything went off very well last night, don't you? Yes, sir. Thanks to you. It is very kind of you to say so, sir. I take it the ancestor came to a satisfactory arrangement with Runcal. Most satisfactory, sir. Madame has just informed me that Mr. Runcal was entirely cooperative. So Tuppy and Angela will be joined in holy wedlock, as the expression is. Almost immediately, sir, I understand from Madame. And even now, Ginger and M. Glendennan are probably in conference with the registrar of their choice. Yes, sir. And Spode has a black eye, which one host is painful. In short, on every side, one sees happy endings popping up out of traps. A pity that Bingley is flourishing like a green what is it, but one can't have everything. No, sir. Medio de fonte leporum, surge tamari, a liquid in ipsis floribus ungut. I don't think I'm quite following you there, Jeeves. I was quoting from the Roman poet Lucretius, sir. A rough translation would be, From the heart of this fountain of delights wells up some bitter taste to choke them, even among the flowers. Who did you say wrote that? Lucretius, sir. 99 to 55 BC. Gloomy sort of bird. His outlook was perhaps somewhat somber, sir. Still, apart from Bingley, one might describe joy as reigning supreme. A very colourful phrase, sir. Not my own. I read it somewhere. I think we may say everything's more or less Uja come spiff. With one exception, Jeeves, I said. A graver note coming into my voice, as I gave Gus his second helping kipper. There still remains a fly in the ointment. A familiar saying, meaning, well, I don't know quite what it means. It seems to imply a state of affairs at which one is supposed to look askance. But why, I ask myself, shouldn't flies be an ointment? What harm do they do? And who wants ointment anyway? But you get what I'm driving at. The Junior Ganymede Club book is still in existence. That is what tempers my ecstasy with anxiety. You have seen how packed with tri-nitro-whatever-it-is, and we know how easily it can fall into the hands of powers of darkness. Who can say that another Bingley may not come along and snitch it from the secretary's room? I know it is too much to ask you to burn the beastly thing, but couldn't you at least destroy the 18 pages in which I figure? I have already done so, sir. What? Yes, sir. You wouldn't be far from wrong in saying that I was visibly moved. So visibly, indeed, that Gus the Cat, who had gone to sleep on my solar plexus, shot some inches into the air and showed considerable annoyance. 
Jeeves! I started to vociferate, but he cut in first. In taking this step, sir, I do not feel I have inflicted any disservice on the Junior Ganymede Club. The club book was never intended to be light and titillating reading for the members. Its function is solely to acquaint those who are contemplating taking new posts with the foibles of prospective employers. This being so, there is no need for the record contained in the eighteen pages in which you figure. For I may hope, may I not, sir, that you will allow me to remain permanently in your service. You may indeed, Jeeves. It often beats me, though, why with your superlative gifts you should want to. There is a tie that binds, sir. A what that what's? A tie that binds, sir. Then heaven bless it, and may continue to bind indefinitely. Fate's happenstance may oft win more than toil, as the fellow said. What fellow was that, sir? Thoreau? No, me. Sir? A little thing of my own. I don't know what it means, but you can take it as coming straight from the heart. Very good, sir. Yes, I didn't think it was bad myself, I said. And after a bit more kidding back and forth, he shimmered out, leaving me to grapple with the problem. Call it problem E, of how to get up and have my bath without waking Gus up, who had now transferred himself to my Adam's apple. The End This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvula audio presentation of Jeeves and the Tie That Binds by P.G. Woodhouse. As usual, our Jeeves and Worcester opening and closing themes were written by the well-known BBC composer Nigel Hess. As promised in Volume 1, here are the story differences between the American and British versions of J.A.T.T.T.B. There are actually only two major differences. First, the American editor gave the U.S. edition a new title, changing it from Much Obliged Jeeves to Jeeves and the Tie That Binds. Second, the editor rewrote Woodhouse's last page, adding Jeeves' disclosure about the destruction of the 18 pages from the Junior Ganymede Club book and his expressed desire to remain permanently in Worcester's employment. Woodhouse agreed to the change because editors had that sort of power back then, but he would never have written that section himself. As far as he was concerned, Jeeves would defend the Ganymede Club book to his grave because he had pledged his oath and would never break it. Jeeves was just that sort of fellow. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvula at uvulaaudio.com. You can become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook or do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcasts, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal link. Next up in our queue of new bookcasts, we will finally be returning to a hardcore children's story with another kitty fantasy from L. Frank Baum. We will soon be presenting The Twinkle Tales. This is a 1905 series by Baum, published under the pen name Laura Bancroft. His publisher back then thought they would sell better with a woman's name on them. The six stories were issued in separate booklets by Baum's publisher, Riley and Britton, with illustrations by Maginelle Wright Enright. In 1911, the six eight-chapter stories were collected 
as Twinkle and Chubbins, their astonishing adventures in nature fairyland. Which is a misnomer since Chubbins appears in only two of the stories and few are actually set in nature fairyland. As with all of Baum's material, the Twinkle Tales are imaginative, mind-blowing, and endearing. And we think you will love them. From all of us at Ubila Audio, we thank you. <laughs>